You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Black cats, Friday the 13th, killer planets, and other irrational beliefs, otherwise known as superstitions, are all on offer during this episode of Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and I wonder, Seth, if it's bad luck to interrupt your train of thought. Let's begin the program by seeing what other wonderfully wacky things we believe when our brains hit the highway. It's... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. Something that may be hard to believe but is nonetheless being challenged is Albert Einstein, or rather his work... Einstein developed the theory of relativity, which explains the behavior of the universe on a large scale, how both time and space are elastic, and how they're influenced by gravity. Well, without relativity, we wouldn't have much understanding of the cosmos. But now, Phil Plate says some brains are challenging this important fundament of physics. I caught up with Phil at the SETICON convention here in the Silicon Valley. The new thing that has been making the rounds recently is a website called Conservapedia. Now, this is created by Andy Schlafly, who is the son of the well-known activist Phyllis Schlafly. And it was sort of his answer to Wikipedia. So he came out with Conservapedia, which is more of a conservative view about things. And he does make many of the attacks on science that I think many of uh, many of our listeners are familiar with. Well, what about Einstein's physics? Is he, is he attacking that? I mean, it's 100 years old. It's had a, a bit of a run. We've, we've done a few experiments. Yeah, it's, it's odd. You know, attacking evolution is one thing, and you would expect that. But why relativity? And there is a part of the website where he talks about liberal politicians using relativity to promote their own platforms. And having read this, I, I think he's missing the point that people are using relativity as a metaphor, that there is a relative aspect to many belief systems and things like that. But this has nothing to do with the physical reality of Einstein's theory of relativity, which has to do with motion and gravity and space and time. What he's arguing is that the physical aspects of relativity are incorrect. Can, he, can you Give me an example. Oh, he has a list of 29 counterexamples to relativity, and many of them have nothing to do with it. For example, there's the Pioneer anomaly. Pioneer was a spacecraft, was launched about 30 years ago, and it, it's heading out of the solar system, and it is not slowing down at the rate you would expect from the combined gravity of all the planets in the solar system. And this is called the Pioneer anomaly, and it was causing quite a few people to scratch their heads. But now it's well understood, or at least it's, it's partly understood, to be due to the way it absorbs 
absorbs and radiates heat. And that gives it a little extra kick when it gives off little photons of infrared radiation. And that's what's almost certainly causing this anomaly. And that one's a little, you know, that one's a little strange. I understand it. That one's a little hard to understand. But it, it, he goes on. He says that unlike other theories, relativity has the inability to lead to other insights. And I thought, really? Are we talking about the same relativity, the same relativity that's been used over and over again in physics? I mean, it's like, it's the framework of all of modern physics, that and quantum mechanics. So for him to say that is, it, you know, I, I don't even know where to start. But he goes on and says, there's a lack of useful devices developed based on insights provided by the theory, and no lives have been helped or saved. This is almost beyond belief. This is like saying quantum mechanics has no applications that have benefited humankind. Well, just look at all of modern electronics. That's the part that kills me. He says, well, you know, the atomic bomb and PET scans are, are based on relativity, but come on, that, that, that's killed a lot more people than it's helped. So we can't say that. And it's like, it has nothing to do with it. The fact of the matter is, we know that these devices work because of relativity. The, the, the big one is, is global positioning system sat, uh, satellites. The GPS works because of relativity. Relativity says that if something is moving relative to you, its clock ticks at a different rate, and if something is experiencing a different gravitational force than you, its clock ticks at a different rate. And you have to combine these two things with GPS because they're orbiting the Earth at some height above the ground, so the gravity they feel is different, their velocity is different, and sure enough, their clocks tick at exactly the rate you would expect as predicted by relativity. If relativity were wrong, GPS would be off by about a half a mile to a mile every single day. So if you're driving your car, you know, and you wait a week, your map would be off by, you know, five miles or something like this. So it's, it's pretty silly to say that relativity doesn't work and there's no evidence for it. Now, how credible is this site? I mean, when you look at it, is this just a crackpot site or do you think that the people go to the site, read it and think, you know, maybe, maybe they're right? Well, uh, <laughs> when I go to the site and look at it, I think, yeah, all right. I don't know if I'd use the word crackpot because that might be litigable. Um, but uh, in fact, it's, it's goofy and wrong and weird. There may be people who are going there and believing it. But if I were a professor teaching relativity at a university, I would send my undergrads to this website, go to this list of 29 things and say, pick five and show why they're wrong. Finally, Phil, I can understand why a site with a political agenda might want to contest evolution, because after all, that affects religious belief. But relativity, what is the motive? You know, it's hard to reason out a motive for something that seems so unreasonable. I don't know. Maybe it is a, an attack on moral relativism. It is a complete confusion of the theory of relativity with philosophical relativism, moral relativism. I don't know. But what I do know is that the examples he gives are wrong, and most of them are laughable. He does give relativity a little bit of credit, but it's overwhelmed by the nonsense that, that is all over this website. Phil, thanks very much. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plate is a skeptic, an author, and keeper of the website badastronomy.com. Okay, you call yourself rational, you homo sapiens listener, you. Yes, I'm talking to you, but I bet that there are some rituals you follow, wearing lucky underwear, never sitting in red chairs, figuring that if you can only win 20 times in a row at computer solitaire, your old girlfriend or boyfriend will come back. 
Did she ever come back, Seth? Uh, no. <laughs> because if you don't follow these rituals, maybe you didn't play that solitaire correctly, Seth, well, you might encounter some bad luck. Is it irrational? Well, maybe. But these rituals are hard to break. Because our brains are wired for them. The Science of Superstition is Bruce Hood's book about the subject. The cognitive scientist has written extensively about why our little gray cells get hung up on dark cats, leaning ladders, and calendar dates. Bruce, the idea that Friday the 13th is unlucky is one of the most widespread superstitions. Is Friday the 13th kind of like Halloween, though? More like a joke than an actual belief? No, it's actually got some tangible financial consequences. Uh, For example, studies have shown that uh, the U.S. economy loses estimates of up to $800 million every Friday the 13th. Well, how does that happen? Well, I suppose people just don't want to kind of tempt fate, so they cancel those uh, transactions or they don't go into work or they just avoid doing anything they think might be a bit risky. What do you think of the fact that many hotels do not have a 13th floor? Does this amuse you or does it make you think, well, you know, this hotel seems taller than it is because it's got more floors than it actually has? Actually, it's the ones on the airplanes I find most amusing. You know, Continental, for example, doesn't have a 13th row as if somehow as the plane plummets to its ultimate end, the passengers in the other seats are going to be okay. So, yeah, it's quite amusing. Uh, Do all cultures uh, have a Friday the 13th? And is it, by the way, Friday the 13th? Not really, no. Um, No one's really sure about the 13th. There are various pet theories. It might be the 13th Apostle or it might be something to do with the Knights Templar. There's a lot of conspiracies. Even Nordic mythology has something about 13. But, of course, in Asia, it's not 13. It's the number 4. And that's because 4 in Cantonese sounds very much like death. And that has a tangible consequence. So they did some studies of Californian Asians and found that there was a peak in cardiac arrests on the fourth day of the month. So belief has real um, important implications. Well, now, wait a minute. You've made an assumption there. Maybe they're having the heart attacks because the fourth really is a bad day and it has some influence. (laughs) Well, there's no scientific reason why it should be. But, uh, yeah, I mean, belief, as we've discovered, doesn't need to have any measurable effect in terms of actual scientific evidence. But belief psychologically, you know, people will uh, change their behavior and feel uncomfortable. So, yeah. Well, all of this falls under the rubric, I guess, of superstition. It sounds like a rather trivial question, but I'm not quite sure the answer is so trivial. What What is a superstition? How do we define mm. something as being a superstition? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I'm, it's usually a practice or a belief which is associated with a particular routine or ritual or habit. So there are the ones that we recognize culturally, for example, Friday the 13th or black cats, four-leaf clovers, the sorts of things that you learn at the, you know, you learn from your parents or your your family. But of course, well, many of us have our own little idiosyncratic superstitions. These are the rituals and the things that we feel we must do in order to have a good day on the tennis court or successful uh, day at the blackjack table. So yeah, superstitions are typically their behaviors or belief patterns which are associated in an, in an attempt to change outcomes. You mentioned uh, sports figures wanting to wear their their favorite jersey or their lucky jersey, I guess they would call it. And, mm. and they're very insistent on that. I mean, these superstitions aren't sort of casual. I mean, people take them at some level very seriously. Yeah, and in fact, there was a paper recently out in one of our flagship journals, Psych Science, and showing that they do actually have uh, an effect. If you thwart a, a sportsman in using their, their lucky charm, they don't perform as well. So it does seem to be uh, have a psychological consequence. It sounds like there's feedback in the system there that tells them that uh, their belief is justified. That's right, because we don't like degrees of uncertainty. And, and you find these, uh, these rituals typically associated with events where you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. So obviously in sport, but also in dangerous professions, uh, firefighters, fishermen typically are very superstitious. And it must be uh, a mechanism of coping with uncertainty. Uh, and doing something is much better than doing nothing. And I think that's, what it's, that's how it's operating. It's reducing the stress of uncertainty. 
you mentioned earlier that we learn some of these things from our parents. Obviously, when it comes to Friday the 13th or black cats, you're not born with that knowledge, if you can call it knowledge. Mm. But superstition in general, it's so widespread. Is it really a cultural phenomenon or is our brain sort of wired to be superstitious? I think our brains are wired to be superstitious. Our brains are, in a sense, predisposed to seeking out patterns and seeing causality, you know, linking events together and seeing them as causally related. And we just can't help ourselves doing that. You know, I can take a handful of coffee beans and throw them on the table and you immediately see patterns. It's just the way our brains work. In fact, we can't even really deal with random events. And uh, again, it's something to do with the way the brain's operating. This sounds like the argument that's occasionally made for our religious beliefs that we're wired for that too. Is, is there some overlap there? Or, or? Yes. I mean, religions clearly are cultural. No child is born to be a Christian or born to be Islamic. And the religion that uh, someone grows up into is clearly what they, their environment is all about. But all religions have very similar components. And I think they are based on the possibility of the supernatural. And they must all have profound components too that, you know, things about the afterlife or magical abilities. So yeah, uh, all religions have supernatural components, but not all supernatural beliefs are religious. Yeah. Well, I've heard it said that when you're a baby, of course, there are actual supernatural beings. They're the ones that, you know, are your parents, mm -hmm. and they can do anything. At least you think that for a while. Uh, yeah. And then at some point, you switch over to the belief that they can't do anything. And, and I've heard it said, well, that's why we become religious, because we're looking for a replacement for our parents. But that wouldn't be brainwiring so much no. as uh, just dealing with reality. Well, maybe that is brainwiring. Well, we know that if you ask children um, a bit older than babies now, so these are preschoolers, they have a natural inclination. When they look at the natural world, they see uh, structure and order. And they can't easily think of that emerging through natural selection, a blind process. So it's very uh, plausible for a child to think that someone has made the trees and the mountains to be the way they are. Likewise, the concept of death is very alien to very young children, the idea that someone can cease to exist. So the notion of an afterlife, again, is something very plausible. So just taking those two things together, the afterlife and divine uh, construction, these are, again, aspects of many religions. I know that you're interested in skepticism as an endeavor, should I say, mm. to deal with the public's widespread belief in many of these things. Have you done any of the experiments? I mean, one frequent belief is that we have eyes in the back of our heads, that we can tell when somebody's looking at us. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people believe that. I mean, it sounds like that's something that's very amenable to testing with experiment. Yeah, that's probably one of the most common supernatural beliefs, so common that, in fact, people don't even recognize it as being supernatural. But something like nine out of 10 people think they can do that. Now, this has been tested, not by myself, but by other laboratories using the exactly you know controlled scientific circumstances and it just doesn't hold any water and yet it's something most people have and I think it reflects first of all a naive assumption about how vision works as if there's something leaving the eyes but also uh, like like Superman like is, Superman is yeah. x-ray vision yes. yeah if you get kids to draw how vision works they typically will have the arrows of arrows coming out of the eyes as if vision is leaving by the way, that was an idea that many uh, Greek scholars also held. But we know that vision works the other way around. And then you combine that with all those instances where you felt you've been watched and you turn around and lo and behold, someone is looking at you. And you conveniently remember those and conveniently forget every example where that doesn't hold up. And so combining those sorts of evidence, if you like, just leads to the strengthening and the belief that you can do it. You, you mentioned that sort of selective memory. I think there's even a term for that, isn't there? It's yeah, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias. And, and that applies to a lot of phenomena. People who think that they have ESP, that's one of the most common things that I've run across in my email, yeah. that they can tell, you know, in some cases where the aliens are. But, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt there was something wrong with my aunt and you know, mm. sure enough, she had died and that sort of thing. Of course, they don't report all the times when they had that dream and the aunt was perfectly okay. It, yeah. Just confirmation bias. Well, and indeed, that's the, the one question I keep getting asked. Whenever I do radio interviews, 
interviews and it's open to the general public, I always, you know, always take telephone calls from people who want me to explain how they had some particular instance. And of course, I can't. But you know, if you have a you know a large enough population, there are going to be lots of weird and wonderful coincidences that just can't be explained away. And people use these personal experiences, these anecdotes, as the evidence that support their belief in the paranormal. Suspend your belief for just a moment and we'll continue with Seth's discussion with Bruce Hood about superstitions. Later in the show, cosmic phobias, why some believe the universe is out to get them. It's Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science, but don't take our word for it. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to our conversation with cognitive scientist Bruce Hood about how superstition guides our behavior. You mentioned to me when we were uh, coming into the studio here an incident involving Charles Simone, who uh, I think paid money to go up into space. Uh, But he also didn't just take his lucky rabbit's foot. (laughs) Yeah, well, I love the story about Charles Simone because, you know, he's uh, one of the co-founders of Microsoft and did very well out of it. And uh, he even endowed a chair for the public engagement of science at Oxford that Richard Dawkins held. So uh, on many levels, he is a very, you know, the pinnacle of rationality, you know, programmer, someone very techie. And yeah, he travels up to the uh, orbiting space station. He's wealthy enough to do that and travels on the Russian uh, rockets. But the interesting thing, and I find this wonderful, is that part of their tradition, part of their superstition, is that they... Uh, uh, they have to urinate on the back wheels of the bus that takes them to the launch pad. So I love that because it's a, you know the juxtaposition of dark age superstition working with uh, high tech uh, modern modern thinking. My goodness, and he did this. I mean, it wasn't his idea. It was just part of the ritual. Is it part of the training <laughs> uh, to be an astronaut? You can have to get pissed off, or at least the bus is. <laughs> well, pissed off being the operative word there. Hopefully, it was a Russian tradition, and not something that was exported by the Americans. I see. How, how pervasive is superstition? Do we have any idea? Do you know the majority mm. of uh, people believe in something superstitious? Uh, all of them, or, or is it a one percent effect? Well, it's about three out of four. The the polls have been done every five years. The pollsters go out and do this. In fact, I was just. I just did one a couple of uh, weeks ago for a company. And it's the majority of people. And of course, if you ask specific questions about religion, then th- that number goes up depending on which country you're asking it. But it's not a minority. It's actually the majority. Is it culturally dependent? If you do this uh, survey in China and compare it with, uh, say, the United Kingdom, is there a substantive dis- difference there? Yeah. So um, the, the data we know about is the Nordic countries, which are typically less religious. But there doesn't appear to be any evidence that they're less believing in paranormal ability. So I think people have a reservoir of belief, and they just shift it culturally depending on what the context is like. A question I often ask, what's the diff? I mean, okay, if people want to believe they've got eyes in the back of their head, or they want to believe that they, they have to... Uh, perform a bodily function on the tires of the bus that's taking them to a rocket. I mean, you know, you could say, all right, well, it'll waste a little bit of time. But after all, it's not, you know, with all the all the troubles in the world, why should we get exercised about this? You know, Seth, and I would have agreed with that entirely. But as I've come to learn more about the skeptical movement and the activities of uh, people who are operating on belief systems, I've discovered there's actually some unsavory practices going on. 
So, for example, there is homeopathy. It wouldn't necessarily be a problem unless, of course, that you forego conventional medicine. So, for example, well, there was a bit of a scandal in London two years ago when they discovered that the homeopaths in London were prescribing homeopathy as an anti-malarial treatment. And so they had all these patients coming back who uh, had got malaria. Or, for example, the attitude towards vaccination. Again, I think a lot of that can be seen to be belief systems getting out of hand. And that has major consequences, for example, in your Bay Area, Marin Marin County, is that what it's called? Marin. Marin County Mm -hmm. uh, is undergoing an epidemic in whooping cough because the parents are not taking vaccination. My own instance was to uh, be involved in the exposure of a company selling divining rods. We call them dowsing in in England. But basically a high-tech divining rod to detect explosives in Iraq. And they sold something like $85 million worth. And this had led actually, you know, to deaths. So I think that beliefs are generally okay, except when they are exploited by unscrupulous individuals to try and make money of uh, people who are just naive. That story you mentioned about the devices that were designed to be used at checkpoints in Iraq, those are the same ones, right? That's exactly right. They weren't, uh, they were foregoing their usual uh, searches of the cars. They were just pointing this, effectively a car aerial. Uh, had no power supply. They basically had to stamp their feet to generate this static electricity, uh, supposedly working on you know, nuclear mo- magnetic resonance. It had all the pseudo science babble with it. But it was a divining rod, a dowsing rod. And um, of course, they weren't checking these cars. And you know, they, they were looking for bombs. They were supposed to be looking for bombs. And several large bombs got through last year and killed hundreds of people. So these do have tangible consequences. Okay. But this sounds like more than just superstition. I mean, it's superstition on the part mm. of the uh, purchaser. It's caveat emptor. And this uh, particular emptor did not Cave, but mm. but but it's fraud on the other end. I mean, what what's happened? Oh, I think this is a clear case of cynical fraud. But the the rods seem to work. I mean, I've seen them demonstrated, and I've I've demonstrated it myself. You don't actually have to pay sixteen thousand dollars for one of these things. You can make it out of a coat hanger, basically. These things appear to move uh, when they're pointed towards something like a target, and that's called the idiomotor effect. In fact, Michael Faraday, you remember from the 19th century? Yes. He did an investigation. Not, not literally. <laughs> but, you know, he he, uh, he was really interested in the psychics and, and the, the Ouija boards, and he proved that the Ouija board was basically unconscious movements by the operators by using these little pressure transducers. And so he discovered the idiomotor effect, and the, all these phenomena are basically unconscious movements of the body, which make the rod turn. But in the case of the dowsing rod, this guy had dressed it up as a bit of pseudoscience. And clearly, I think it's a more complicated story than just simple belief. But my point is that it's premised on belief, the idea that you can detect forces and energies in this way. Well, Bruce Hood, I uh, thank you for coming into the studio today. And uh, you had to walk under a ladder to get here, but so far you seem to be intact. Well, I kicked the black cat out of the way. That was okay. Cross your fingers and wish Bruce Hood luck with his work as cognitive scientist at the University of Bristol in the UK. He's also the author of The Science of Superstition, How the Developing Brain Creates Supernatural Beliefs. Now, if this comet continues on its path around the sun and keeps its present course, sometime on August 16th, there's a chance that we might have impact. In the disaster film, Deep Impact, the president, played by Morgan Freeman, explains that a killer asteroid or comet is hurtling toward Earth. Suspense, terror, and a lot of predictable mayhem ensue, But actually, in this case, the rock isn't entirely deflected. It hits, which is, after all, what the audience wants to see. There's destruction, but humanity lives on. And funny enough, this asteroid scenario may be Hollywood, 
but it's not totally far-fetched because one will crash into our planet one day as it has in the past. But people still have an irrational fear of killer asteroids, just as they do of colliding planets and other cosmic menaces. And when they do, what do they do? Well, some people log on to the NASA Astrobiology website and they write to Dave Morrison. Dave, superstition is the irrational belief arising from ignorance or fear. Now, you run a feature called Ask an Astrobiologist on the NASA Astrobiology website, and you get a lot of questions. Any of them fit the definition of a superstition? They sure do fit that definition. I started out several years ago with questions being about science, about astrobiology. The majority now are from people who are afraid of the universe who think that the universe is out to get them. The universe is out to get them. And, and, what's, and, and in which ways is it out to get them? Most of the problems that people have are with this uh, superstition, this rumor that the world is going to end on December 21st, 2012. A completely baseless idea, but there are millions of people who are afraid of that. But nowadays, I get a lot of other questions. People think that uh, the Andromeda galaxy is going to crash into us, or the sun's going to explode, or, or something that they've vaguely heard about is a direct threat to them. Well, both of those things are going to happen. You can't gainsay that. So, you know, what, what, what's wrong here? That's not superstition. The Andromeda galaxy is going to slam into the Milky Way. In about two billion years, it will. If you wait long enough, I guess the universe will get you. But uh, not on the time scale people worry about. Why do you think that is? We know that there are a lot of people that have trouble understanding science, especially the concept of deep space and deep time. Often things that may happen a billion years from now are taken as a personal threat. For instance, a lot of people write to me and think that the sun is going to explode or a giant flare is going to come along and kill every being on Earth. And this is clearly uh, a manufactured fear, a cosmophobia, something that, that they have internalized and taken an external piece of astronomy and taken it as a personal threat. How, how far do they take this cosmophobia then, Dave? Do they, uh, do they do more than simply write you a, a letter about it? And are they happy with your answers? Or do you think they're still just as afraid as they were before? There are people who are so afraid of a nearby supernova or the sun exploding that they say they're considering suicide. I have had mothers write to me about the supposed end of the earth in 2012, saying they were likely to kill their children and themselves so they wouldn't suffer through the end of the earth well, when in you, December 2012. Well, when you get a, a mail like that, what do you do? I worry about it. I see. I, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. What are some of the other examples of people that have written you with irrational, superstitious problems? This is a superstition that's tied to science at some level, but taken completely out of proportion. There are people that are afraid that a gamma ray burst will destroy the Earth. There are people afraid that a planet from outside is going to crash into the sun and destroy the solar system. There are people who are afraid of Betelgeuse, the star, and can't sleep because of it. Afraid of Betelgeuse? What's Betelgeuse going to do to them? Well, you know, in, in a few hundred million years, it might explode and be a very bright object in the sky. But it is not a threat to them, and it's not something that's going to happen while we're on Earth, for sure. 
one thing that I find rather interesting about this is that these are indeed, as you point out, all astronomy related. Now, on the one hand, this is an astrobiology website. But, you know, I, I can't imagine that, for example, an organic chemist gets a lot of people <laughs> complaining to them that, you know, organic chemistry is out to get me. When, in fact, organic chemistry really is out to get you. Uh, why, why is it that there's this fear of outer space? I mean, it's been pretty benign for the last four and a half billion years. I'm sure there's a selection effect. People write to me as an astronomer and, and someone else would write about microbes. But the universe is awesome. The universe is not easily comprehended. It is very big. It involves tremendously energetic events. And if you don't understand it, if you just hear a little half of a news show or something, I suppose it can produce this kind of reaction. Well, then, let's get back to 2012. December 21st, I believe, is the date on which the world is going to end. And um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where this idea came from and what the truth might be, Dave. The reason for the date of December 2012 is that that is the end of one of the big cycles in the Mayan calendar. The Mayan calendar isn't like ours. It doesn't have months and years. It has cycles. And one of the longest, that's about 500 years, comes to an end then. Now, the Mayans didn't predict the end of the world. Some of them apparently think it will be a time for celebration, but it's not a risk. The end of the Mayan calendar then is like December 31st on my calendar on my desk. I don't think that's Armageddon. I think there'll be a new calendar on January 1st. So people have taken a fairly innocent sort of piece of anthropology, the Mayan calendar, and some of them have turned it into a big deal. There are more than 300 books for sale about the end of the world in 2012. There are folks out there trying to make money, and unfortunately, gullible people fall for it. But how is this going to happen? I mean, the, the Mayans, if you believe this, the Mayans have predicted when it's going to happen, but how, do, uh, how does the Mayan calendar manage to destroy the Earth? There are people, unscrupulous people, who have built up a whole mythology. One is that there is a rogue planet called Nibiru, that's going to crash into the earth. And some of them think it's already here. I had a man write to me last summer saying that uh, all the people in his block were out with telescopes at night watching Nibiru. Uh, well, they were watching something. What was it? Jupiter. <laughs> uh, another is that there's going to be some huge solar explosion that will kill us all. Another is that a psychic named Nancy Leader is being warned by aliens on a planet around the star Zeta Reticuli that the Earth will end. And these folks have sold books, they have set up websites, and they have built up this strange mythology around the date in 2012. Does the psychic say how it's going to happen? Is it another collision scenario? Collisions seem to be very popular. That's right. And there are people who think it's happening already. I got a message yesterday, someone saying, well, the Earth's axis must already be changing, but that's what's produced the floods in Pakistan and the earthquake in Haiti and so forth. So whenever things happen, they tend to link it to some external astronomical threat. Well, Dave, as you well know, there actually is a threat from space. Uh, asteroids, errant asteroids, perhaps a comet. Um, and, and that is a real threat. I mean, you worry about that. You deal with that. You're known as Dr. Doom because of your studies into this subject. So what's the story there? How concerned should we be about rocks from space? If we take the long view, the Earth will be struck again by a big comet or asteroid. We will have a mass extinction event like the one that did in the dinosaurs. But the difference is the dinosaurs didn't have a space program, and we do. 
We have the capability to detect an incoming object. We have the capability to deflect it. So we just might be able to save our planet. This is not an immediate threat, though. It's something to think about. It's something to, to be concerned about. But I've tried my best to shed the Dr. Doom uh, name and try to not overemphasize or, or make, create hyperbolic statements about the impact threat. Dave, you, uh, you spend you know, part of every week answering these questions on the Ask an Astrobiologist website. Do you think this is doing any good? Because, after all, people still seem to be a little bit paranoid about what might happen to them. Some people write to me and thank me. I imagine a lot of people read the posted replies and don't write to me at all and because I've answered their questions already. So I think it's the right thing to do. But I am disturbed at the fact that I get five or six questions every day by people who are truly frightened, who are scared of the end of the world or some cosmic catastrophe that they think threatens their own personal life. Okay, well, if somebody has a question that they want to ask you, how do they do that? If they want to ask me a science question, I strongly encourage them to write to Ask an Astrobiologist. You can Google it. It's on the NASA Astrobiology website. Dave Morrison, thanks so much. Thank you. Dave Morrison keeps his eyes on the skies as director of the Carl Sagan Center for the Study of Life in the Universe at the SETI Institute. Coming up, how strong beliefs can have physical outcomes. It's Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. Welcome back to Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. All this talk about irrationality, well, let's go to where reality is really skewed. Hooray for Hollywood. That's screwy ballyhooey Hollywood. We're in New York. All right, everybody. This is a reality check. Put your credulity on the table. As an investigator of paranormal claims, our skeptic Jim Underdown gets some pretty strange phone calls, some that would make your head spin. When I got a call to see a real live exorcism, I jumped at the chance. The movie, The Exorcist, came out in 1973 when I was a kid, and I still remember hearing stories about all the vomiting. And I'm talking about audience members vomiting in the theaters. In one scene, Father Karras, The Exorcist, throws some holy water on Reagan, the possessed little girl. How long are you planning to stay in Reagan? Until she rots and lies stinking in the earth. What's that? Holy water? You keep it away. Okay, I knew I wasn't going to see any spinning heads or projected streams of pea soup, though I asked one of our crew if I should wear a raincoat. But it was hard to imagine modern-day people taking exorcism seriously. But they do. Nowadays, people believe that evil spirits can invade a person and cause illness, pain, and even psychological problems. When these folks talk about battling their demons, they mean it literally. They also believe that an exorcist can rid them of all of that. I drove from Hollywood to a Christian church in an industrial park in Sacramento, California. A 15-foot crucifix hung in front of a roll-up steel garage door. I sat with 13 or 14 people on stackable chairs in this makeshift chapel waiting to see demons chased out of some poor woman's body. The woman to be exorcised, I'll call her Mary, had lost a child, was still fighting a drug problem, and had been abused when she was younger. 
She saw her depression and unhappiness as the manifestation of evil spirits inside of her. Enter the exorcist, a big guy I'll call Brother Pablo, a self-styled preacher untrained by the church. He called Mary over to sit down and look him in the eye. He asked her why she was there. When she told him about her hard times, I felt bad for her. She's having a tough life. But when Brother Pablo started reading Bible verses over her and chanting, I command you to come out, all I could think of was how she should be getting some real drug counseling and seeing a professional shrink. Pablo knelt, Bible in hand, next to Mary as she writhed on the floor, screaming one minute and dry heaving the next. People being exercised really do heave, burp, cough, and vomit, by the way. Pablo chanted and urged the spirits to leave Mary, but it looked to me like Mary was taking subtle cues from him. Pablo would say something like, Demons be gone from her neck, and Mary would stiffen her neck. He spoke, and she reacted. This went on for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, and by the time it all ended, Mary was calmer and seemed relieved. Brother Pablo's power of suggestion made Mary believe that the demons she thought were in her had now been exorcised. So if Mary felt like she was cured, whether by suggestion or not, what's the problem with exorcisms? People suffer from real illnesses all the time. They get appendicitis, bladder infections, and all kinds of other treatable problems. But exorcisms are no substitute for appendectomies. You may get a few minutes of relief, but the problem is still there. If a guy is hearing voices he thinks are evil spirits, he might have a treatable form of schizophrenia. Brother Pablo is unqualified to diagnose or treat any physical or mental illness. Maybe that's why he sees some of the same people over and over. Oh, and let's not forget that the concept of demons and evil spirits is primitive as hell and not based in fact. Before you try to flush an imp out of some scared woman, you ought to be able to detect him in the first place. Science has never seen a demon. Finally, Blaming bad behavior on a demon is just skating past responsibility for your actions. The devil made me do it? Ha! Tell it to the judge. Exorcisms on the silver screen are great scary fun, but in real life, they're just a sad blast from our distant past. Jim Underdown is executive director of the Center for Inquiry, Los Angeles. When we're not lifting your spirits with stories of exorcism, we're talking in the show about superstition. And about the fears surrounding the mythical 2012 apocalypse. Now, as with so many things that are misleading, an element of truth of real science is what can give a story credibility. One of the scenarios envisioned for the end of the world is that a giant solar flare will, if not destroy the Earth, at least do widespread damage. A recent op-ed in the New York Times warned of a super solar storm in 2012. Now, solar storms are real, but this author suggests that, coming soon, this storm would be massive and it would be devastating to our modern lifestyle, knocking out the power grid for months or even years. So what's the real science? Seth asked Martin Snow. He's a research scientist at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Martin, part of the uh, 2012 doomsday scenario, one of the ways that uh, the Earth, or at least civilization, might come to an end is by way of a huge solar storm. Are we really due for a large solar storm in 2012? 
Well, they're they're kind of unpredictable as to when they're going to happen, but the predictions now are that this coming solar maximum is actually going to be smaller than the last few that we've had. So, so the chances of an extra big storm like that are probably low. Well, what about the date, 2012, late 2012? Does, does that agree with the predictive maximum in the sun's activity? No, actually the prediction now is that the peak of the next solar cycle will be in May of 2013. So, in fact, it's not even going to happen in 2012. But there's been an op-ed piece in the New York Times warning not only of a solar storm, but of a super solar storm, one that could uh, really wreak havoc and destruction and, in particular, knock out our power grid. What's the difference between a solar storm and a super one? <laughs> well, well, I'm not really sure. The largest such storm that we've ever had was back in 2003, and the sun can produce uh, what are called solar flares, so that's kind of a quick expense of energy that might produce what's called a coronal mass ejection, where a lot of charged particles are emitted from the sun that, that can, if they're pointed the right way, can hit the Earth and cause a disruption in the electrical grid like the, the op-ed author talks about. But I don't know that you can predict that we're going to have a bigger one than the ones we already had. Okay, well, perhaps you can explain to me, how does a solar storm knock out a power grid Anyway, I mean, what are the what are the mechanisms there? I mean, you know, a big ball of gas boils off the sun, and uh, you know, I'm sitting here with my reading lamp. I mean, what does that do to me? What does it do to my <laughs> my grid? So, uh, so what happens is, uh, yeah, I mean, a big ball of gas can be emitted by the sun, and as that hits the Earth's magnetosphere, so the Earth has a great big magnetic field. I mean, that's why your compass works and so on, and that can get kind of squished a little bit, and that can produce a great big voltage across a power grid that's, you know, many, many miles across, and it can create a higher voltage than the transformers are expecting, and that might cause them to overheat or something. But this is a known effect, so the power companies, they pay attention to uh, what are called space weather alerts. And so if they predict that there's going to be such an event, you know, they can take certain transformers offline or whatever, because even though when the flare goes off on the sun, the light it emits gets here in just a few minutes, it actually takes days for that ball of gas to get to the Earth. So we really do have a lot of warning about when that's going to hit the Earth. Now, Martin, solar storms do occur, and they occur somewhat regularly at regular cycles. Certainly the sun has a regular cycle of getting active and then getting quiescent again. What what are the intervals for these, uh, these sorts of activity? It's like an 11-year cycle. So we just come out of the minimum time and the sun's activity is now increasing. The last maximum of activity was like in 2002. So, and these solar storms are caused by what? I mean, do, do we know, do we understand what causes uh, giant coronal mass ejections, as they're called, uh, amongst the uh, solar literati? Well, we don't understand in detail exactly what causes one to happen on any particular day. What happens is the sun has a magnetic field that gets twisted up in, you know, around sunspots, what are called active regions. And if it gets twisted up enough, then it can release energy quickly in the form of a, of a flare, which sometimes, not always, will also produce one of these coronal mass ejections. So by watching the active regions over a period of time, we have a good understanding of what causes these flares, but we're still working on predicting when a particular active region is going to produce a flare. One of the points made in this opinion piece was the fact that the last major solar storm apparently was 1921, I think. 
And that was before these massive power grids were really in operation. But I mean, power grids are not the only part of our uh, infrastructure that is vulnerable to uh, solar activity. Well, it's true that, I mean, we have satellites and so on that can also be affected by these solar storms. But the, the largest flare on record was actually in 2003. There were a number of flares in what's called the Halloween storm period. Over the course of a week, there were five or six flares, and those were the largest ones ever recorded. And, and did they knock out any of our satellites? No, I don't think so, because you can take steps to mitigate or prevent damage by, say, you know, disconnecting some things or rotating the satellite to face away from the sun. So finally, Martin, this idea that 2012 may indeed offer up a little bit of calamity by an overactive sun sounds to me like it is mostly hype. Yeah, I'm afraid that I would agree with you. It sounds like mostly hype. There isn't really any prediction or any evidence that the sun ever produces these superstorms that op-ed piece talks about. The sun has been producing flares for the last century and haven't had the great big disasters yet, and I don't think that we will in the next few years either. All right. Well, Martin Snow, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Martin Snow is a research scientist at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Well, you know, Molly, everybody knows about the uh, the famous superstitions, Friday the 13th of Black Cats and all that. But, you know, superstitions, of course, are a worldwide phenomenon. Apparently, uh, in Africa, on Halloween, you have what's called a dumb supper, which isn't to say that the food isn't very interesting, but merely that nobody can talk while eating dinner. The idea being that that welcomes spirits that are around the dinner table at that particular juncture. What do you have there, a list of strange superstitions? Because that's what I have. Well, uh, actually, I do have a list of strange superstitions. Okay, so I can match yours. I mean, we shouldn't say strange because there's an origin. There's a reason why many of these developed. But um, at this point in the 21st century, they do seem a little out of step. A bird in the house is a sign of death. I'm not sure what that means. Like a living bird? If it's a dead bird, then it certainly is a sign of death. Yeah, well, I, I'll look at my chicken dinner a little differently. Hey, this is a sign of death. <laughs> I'm not eating this thing. Uh, the, you know, there are quite a few that have to do with the future marriage prospects of women. I guess they're superstitious about that. Uh, one is you, you grab a snail and you put them on a plate uh, <laughs> without cooking them, I suppose, a dinner plate. And then, of course, the snail moves around and it leaves a s- slimy trail And presumably that slimy trail will spell out the first letter of uh, your future husband's name. So maybe if it makes an R, you know. But, of course, that's kind of ambiguous. Is it Rodney? Is it Ralph? Is it Robert? (laughs) At any rate, it doesn't sound good. Okay, now tell me if you've heard this one. A loaf of bread should never be turned upside down after a slice has been cut from it. I've never heard that. What happens if you do? Well, I, uh, I assume that you have bad luck. Well, you're going to always have bad luck. That's the trouble with something like that. It's always going to be verified. You know, eventually, two weeks later, you only get a flat in your car. and You you know what it was? It was turning over that loaf of bread last week. That's right. Well, here's another one that actually maybe if I were in the marketing department of a broom company, I would put this one on a bumper sticker. Never take a broom along when you move. Throw it out and buy a new one. Huh. I have to say that I had uh, some roommates from Latin America once, uh, and in fact, uh, I was cleaning up the kitchen. I accidentally, well, it wasn't so accidental, but I actually swept with a broom over the feet, the shoes of some young woman there from Panama, and she got very upset. She said, you sweep my feet, and I won't get married. So she wants to be swept off her feet, but just not by you. She just didn't want her feet swept. Oh, got it. Right. That was it. I mean. <laughs> okay, here's one. See if this, what you think the possible origins of this one could be. An acorn at the window will keep lightning out. 
Oh, gee. You know, I bet if you took an acorn and put it in your window, I bet you could go years and years without suffering a lightning strike, thereby proving that it works. Exactly. But that's kind of nutty. And speaking of nuts, in the UK, in England, apparently nuts are considered uh, good luck omens because apparently they believed once that the devil was a nut gatherer. I, is the devil a squirrel? Okay, so here's another one. This, this, was, this is interesting. It's bad luck to light three cigarettes with the same match. Well, now that may be because by the time you get to the third cigarette... Yeah, you burnt your fingers? Yeah, you're burning your fingers. <laughs> okay, that, that's three strikes, and you're, and you're out, I guess, or at least the matches. Now, this one, you should never start a trip on a Friday or you will meet misfortune. That sounds a little bit like the, a cousin to a Friday the 13th. Yeah, but, omen. But, but that's bad news for the airlines. There's a lot of weekend travel. I mean, yeah. what, start, start on Friday, you'll meet misfortune. What about Mr. Fortune? Okay, to dream of a lizard is a sign that you have a secret enemy. Now, that is surreal. Do, do you dream of lizards? I, well, not not frequently. I mean, you know, one, one dream in five, maybe. I don't know. Well, <laughs> when, when I do, they tend to be, you know, dinosaur types. Okay, they, so you have, to... probably have no secret enemies. All your yeah. enemies are out in the open. You know, we, we view black cats as being affiliated with witches to be uh, something, uh, you know, devilish. But in fact, apparently it's more common to view white cats as being the sorts of things you ought to avoid. And in Russia, it's believed that blue cats are good luck. Now, to begin with, how many blue cats have you ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> and what could be good luck about seeing a blue cat? I mean, either the poor thing fell in some paint yeah. or maybe it's a Chernobyl experiment. I don't know. Some sort Doesn't of genetic like mutation. Yeah, yeah, good luck. Okay, here's one that's kind of heavy. Dropping. I, I think, I think uh, actually yellow cats with black spots are probably bad luck. <laughs> Dropping an umbrella on the floor. You want to guess what that what happens if you drop an umbrella on the floor? Well, if you've got a nice hardwood floor, you're probably un- upset because of the dent. <laughs> okay, that's a very 21st century modern interpretation. No, uh, it means that there will be a murder in the house. Uh, is it a bumper shooting? If a clock, which has not been working, suddenly chimes, there will be a death in the family. Well, there'll be a death in the family anyway, as you said, if you wait long enough. Yeah, but a clock that isn't working suddenly chimes. You know, a self-fixing clock. Yeah. That's remarkable altogether. You, you see that these things are spooky. They're spooky to people, and so then people assume that they portend bad things. Well, they do generally involve things that are unusual, like blue cats and <laughs> self-fixing clocks, not to mention, you know, getting your toes swept. Here's another one about uh, getting married. A, wo- a woman who puts a sprig of rosemary in a silver sixpence, in case you have one of those, under her pillow, she'll dream about her future husband. Well, I would say according to these, Seth, pretty much anything you do is either good luck or bad luck. And there's no doubt about it. I'm sure to have both. Hello, podcast listener. After this episode aired, we received many letters apprising us of the origin of the three cigarettes, one match superstition. Turns out it arose during wartime because by the time the match got to the third cigarette, the enemy would have been able to see, aim, and fire on the smoker's location. As for the Russian blue cat that caused Seth some consternation, we were informed that the Russian blue is in fact a breed of cat. Back to the show, or back to the end of the show. And that's it for our show. We're lucky to have Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler helping us with it. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe requires thinking critically about scientific evidence. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. You can browse our archive or even listen to the show again at bigpicturescience.org. And you can take our word for that. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.